For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Well, if you've been here with us for our study in Genesis, you know we've covered a lot of ground. We started all the way with the origins of the world, the origins of humanity, sadly, the origins of sin and death as well. We saw the mess that humans have made of this world that God created, this good world. And, we, and what we also saw last time, if you were here for Genesis chapter 11, the first part of this chapter, you saw human beings banding together to form an empire, to form their own man-made religion, to band together to stay safe, to make a name for themselves, to oppress other people. These are the sort of things humans come up with when they get together. And so we saw God intervene. He scattered the languages. He scattered people into different nations and thus helped motivate them to move out over the surface of the globe to slow the spread of evil. And we've seen some other promises from God here so far in Genesis. One really important one in Genesis 3 is that God says, I'm going to send a promised one. I'm going to send a man one day who will do something permanent to undo the evil and death and all the other uh, bad things that we've unleashed into this world. And in Genesis, it's been tracing the genealogy of that promised one. It's been tracing a lineage right down through Seth, right down through Noah, right down through Enoch, right down to the genealogy that we're going to see tonight, the genealogy of the promised one. And so we start with a genealogy. That's where Genesis gets its name, the genealogies. It says in Genesis 11, this is the account or the genealogy of a guy named Terah's family. We're going to spend the rest of the book of Genesis looking at Terah's family. That's all we're going to talk about from here forward. This is very much a turning point in the book where God really narrows in on what he's going to do about the problems that we have unleashed into this world. It says, Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran was the father of Lot. But Haran died in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, the land of his birth, while his father Terah was still living. And so Ur of the Chaldeans, this is a place we know about. We're finally to a place in Genesis where we can start to see chronology. These are datable events. The date for this is around 21 to 2200 B.C. Ur of the Chaldeans, what is it? <clears throat> well, we know where it is on the map. This is a map of sort of the Middle East. And you can see Ur of the Chaldees down in the southeast corner of this map, down toward the bottom of the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. This is a place that's been excavated by Sir Leonard Woolley, in 1922, you can see some of the remains of ancient Ur of the Chaldees. Here's an artist's reconstruction of what this might have looked like. You can see one of those big ziggurats, those big towers, those big temples that we saw last week. The picture in the top right is actually a view from the top of the ziggurat that they've excavated there at Ur of the Chaldeans. New Bible Dictionary has this to say about Ur. It says the ruins of the temple tower, ziggurat, built by Ur-Namu, the founder of the prosperous third dynasty, still dominate the site. And so this was the third dynasty right around the time that we're reading about tonight. The history and economy of the city is well known from thousands 
of inscribed tablets and many buildings found at the site. This was a great commercial center, an area of tremendous wealth and power and religion. In fact, the principal deity was Nanar, the moon god, who was also worshipped at another city called Haran, which we'll see come up later in tonight's teaching. And so we have this Ur of the Chaldeans. Not only was it a prosperous city, but it was a city famous for its false religion, its worship of the moon god, which makes you wonder, what was Terah doing in Ur? Was he a faithful follower of Yahweh? Was he a preacher of righteousness? And the answer is no. He was getting rich and worshiping the moon god. That's what he was doing in Ur. That's what he was doing when God came into the life of his family. As Joshua says later on in the history of Israel, he says, Long ago your ancestors, including Terah, father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and they worshipped other gods. And so this is the family that God picks to work through. This is the chosen family and the line of the promised one. The moon god-worshipping, money-seeking family of Terah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Check out Terah's family, by the way. Okay, so you got Terah. And then he had three sons and one daughter we know about. Abram, who becomes Abraham, who becomes very important. He had a half-sister named Sarai, who also becomes an important player here. More on her in a moment. He had a son named Nahor and another son named Haran, who died while Terah was still alive, but not before Haran had three kids. Two daughters, Milcah and Iscah, and a son named Lot, who's going to become important. Now check this out. Terah, his name means moon. So he's named after this moon god. Haran, that's a city known for its worship of the moon god at the other end of the Euphrates. And so you got Moon and his son, Moon God City. <laughs> his daughter, Sarai, is named after the wife of the moon god. And then Haran's daughter, Milcah, is named after the daughter of the moon god. So we got Moon God, Moon God City, Moon God Et, and Moon God Et Jr. And you think you've got a messed up family. You wonder, with my background, how can God use somebody like me? Well, look at Abraham, okay? Look at his family. Now, it's not like, it's not like God didn't have any other options. There's a guy named Job who was super godly, who we can read about, who would have been in this area around this time. God had other plans for Job. There's a guy named Melchizedek we're going to meet next week. Not worshiping the moon god, that's for sure. And yet, God picks these people right here. These are the ones he decides to use. These are the ones he chooses. Genesis 11 gives a few more kind of uncomfortable details. Meanwhile, Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, his half-sister. This is back before that sort of thing was not allowed by the law of Moses. Nahor, his wife, was Milcah. <laughs> oh, man, his, his niece. Oh. Yeah, this, 
this has less forks than a redneck family tree here. <laughs> and it's not going to get any better as the next generations roll on. We're going to meet Nahor and Milka's kids. Lot is going to play a role here. Yeah, it's a different time. <laughs> in the plan of God and in the genetic pool of the human race. So, another detail we get, Sarai was unable to become pregnant and had no children. That's going to become pretty important in the story that follows, in the history of the people of God. Well, they're in Ur of the Chaldees, and it says, something strange happened. One day, Terah took his son Abram, his daughter-in-law Sarai, slash his daughter, (laughs) his grandson Lot, which was his son Haran's child, and they moved away from Ur of the Chaldeans. So they start moving up the Euphrates River, heading for the land of Canaan. So something prompted him to head for this land of Canaan. That's modern-day Israel. And so they start making their way. Here's the Euphrates River. They, They would have stayed right next to the river. They needed water. And he's heading north, but then something happens. It says they stopped at Haran and settled there. So instead of heading back down to the southwest at this point, they head another 80 miles north to Haran. It's a 700-mile it's journey that he takes his family on, and they settle in Haran. Haran, which was also known for its worship of the moon god. We saw earlier, remember? So they go from moon god Ur to moon god Haran. And then Terah lived for 205 years and died while still in Haran. Some translations say 145 years. It's hard to tell which, which one is right. But So he moves his whole family to Haran. Why would he do such a thing? What, what happened to him to prompt him to do this? Well, Genesis 12, 1, the very next verse, tells us it wasn't something that happened to Terah. It was something that actually happened to his son, Abram. And I may call him Abraham at times because his name's going to get changed to Abraham in a few chapters just to clear up any confusion. So check out what happened to Abraham. It says, first of all, Yahweh had said to Abram, had said. Some translations say said. I think what's happening here is this is a flashback to what happened back in Ur that got the family to move. There's different ways to read the chronology, but I think this is the best way to make sense of it. Yahweh had said not to Terah, but to Abram. Abram who was living in Ur, worshiping the moon god, not even seeking out Yahweh, he said, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. So he asks them to do four things. Leave these three things and go to this one place, the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. In fact, he makes a bunch of promises here. This promise to Abram is a very, very, very important promise. This is a promise that we repeated numerous times throughout the book of Genesis and on through the rest of the the Old Testament. It's going to be clarified. It's going to be expanded. God's going to promise again and again and again that I will keep my promise to Abram, to Abraham. In fact, it's hard to understand the rest of the Bible if you don't understand this promise that God made to Abraham. It's hard to go more than a couple of pages without seeing a reference to this promise that God made to Abraham. 
I remember a Bible teacher saying that. I'm like, no way. And then as I've read the Old Testament and the New Testament again and again, I've got to say that teacher was right. This is a mountain on the landscape of biblical history. And the rest of the Bible is the working out of and the fulfillment of this promise right here. This is a covenant. Remember last week we talked about covenants where, you know, there's two parties and each one makes a commitment and there's requirements, okay? And so God, this is the only thing he's asking from Abraham. And then he is going to come through on a pretty sweet deal when it comes to his end of the bargain. Let's check it out. He promises Abraham seven things in verses 2 and 3. He says, first of all, I will make you into a great nation. A great nation. You're going to see this promise reiterated again and again. As many as the, the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. Well, that's going to be pretty hard if Abraham and his wife can't even have kids. How's that going to work? He says, I'll bless you and I will make you famous. I will make your name great. Remember last week how the people were banding together at the Tower of Babel to try to make a name for themselves, to protect themselves. We want to be famous. Our building projects, our power, our wealth. And God says, I'm going to make you so famous, Abraham. And it's not going to be because of your building projects or your wealth. You're going to be known to billions of people in the year 2017 because you are my friend. That's what's going to make a name for Abraham. And sure enough, today, Abraham's name is pretty famous. Jews, Christians, Muslims all trace their spiritual and even their biological heritage. In the case of Jews and Muslims, they trace it right back to Abraham. Yeah, he's pretty famous. God came through on that part of the promise. He says, you'll be a blessing to others. It's not just for your sake, Abraham, but it's through you that you're going you're to be a blessing to other people. Other people are going to benefit from what I'm doing right here through you, this nation I'm going to make out of you. I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who treat you with contempt. You know, at Babel, they were trying to protect themselves, and we've got all these strategies to protect ourselves. And God says, you just need to trust me. I'm going to be the one to protect you. Just trust me. There's, there's a deep element of trust here that God is appealing to in the heart of Abraham. And all the families on earth will be blessed through you. You're going to see that again and again. Remember all those nations, all those, those people groups that were, were kind of split up and spread all over the world at Babel? God says all of those are going to be blessed through what I'm going to do in this one family right here. What I'm going to bring out of the Jewish nation, all the peoples of the world are going to be blessed. And for the rest of Scripture, when, including the New Testament, whenever you see all the nations, go into all the nations, spreading to all the nations, that's a reference back to this promise to Abraham. Theologians call this the Abrahamic covenant, if you wanted to put a theological word on it. But it's these seven promises that God makes to Abraham centering around a great nation, this land I'm going to show you, and ultimately, you are going to be a blessing to all the nations in the world. Well, this is quite an offer for a moon god worshiper in Ur who wasn't even seeking out God. Can you imagine what this would have been like 
when God appeared to Abraham in the land of Ur, beyond the Euphrates River? Abraham. Is that you, moon god? <laughs> there is no moon god. And Abram, I think you know that in your heart, that there is no moon god. But, but moon god, uh, my wife slash half-sister is named after your wife. I don't have a wife. I am God and there is no other. And Abram, I'm asking you to trust me. I've got an offer for you. And he calls Abram to move, to leave everything and go to a land that Yahweh was going to show him. Well, how does Abram respond to God's offer? Well, what did God say? Leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. Initially, he's one for four. He doesn't leave his relatives. He doesn't leave his father's household. He doesn't go to the land that God told him to go to. He just leaves his native country. And, you know, he got some of his family to go with him. I mean, that, was, that would have been a pretty tough sell, you know, even just to leave their native country. You know, he's like, hey, guys, guess what? There's no moon god. I know we're all named after him. <laughs> but the true God came to me and said, we've got it all wrong, and we need to pack up everything and leave and go to this land he's going to show us. And they're like, really? <laughs> no moon god? Okay, uh, Where's this land that he said to go to? You know, he said it was that way. So let's, uh, let's, let's load up the caravan here and get going. No. I mean, his family would have laughed at him like he's crazy to put forth something like that. And, you know, I do wonder if some of us can relate to Abraham at this point, you know, where God has called us and we're trying to talk to our family and they're looking at us like, they're cr like we're crazy because, of course, that's not true and that's not the way we've ever done things. And how can you be sure? And I think you're really losing it. We may get some pushback. We may have people look at us like we're crazy. If we're really going to respond, if we're really going to trust God and trust His promises. Well, you can see from this map... They did get on the move. They did leave their native country. They did make their way up the Euphrates River. And then they came really to a fork in the river here. They could continue to follow the river to the west and then make their way back down to the south where God wanted them to go. Or they could make a right and go right back to what they'd always done. Right back to another center of moon god worship in Haran. And that's exactly what they did. And again, I wonder if some of us maybe can relate to this. We're off to a good start. And then our, the months tick by. We get pressure. We get pushed back from people. Things get hard. And what 
we intended to set out following God and trusting Him. Our faith starts to ebb and we start thinking about our old life. We start thinking about the way we used to do things. And we end up, maybe not in exactly the same place, but really just another version of where we were before. Not trusting in God. And that's what happened to Abram. How long did he stay in Haran? The text doesn't tell us. If his dad died at age 145, then you can add up the ages and you can come to the conclusion that he stayed in Haran until his father died. That it wasn't until his father had passed away that he finally got back to the promise that God made to him. If he died at 205, then what it means is there came a day in Haran where Abram sat down with his dad and he said, Dad, I can't keep putting off following God just because you don't want to go any further. Just because you're stuck in the old ways. And I'm going to have to move forward with or without you. And Terah said, see you later. And Abram loaded up the camels and headed out. And that's exactly what happened. It says in verse 4, Abram departed as Yahweh had instructed. All those years ago, he finally got back. He finally did two more of those four things that God told him to do. He left his father's house and he went to the land of Canaan. It says that Lot went with him. Hmm. So there's one thing he hasn't left yet, and that's the rest of his father's relatives. He's still got one Klingon, Lot, who is not going to be with him for that much longer. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Now remember, they lived longer back then. We're still in that time of shrinking ages. 75, you know, he's going to live to age 180, Abraham is. So, you know, he's like middle-aged right now. His wife is 65. She would also be the equivalent of like a middle-aged woman. Um, and that, that becomes sort of important in the, the next story here. So he leaves Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all of his wealth. His livestock, all the people he had taken into his household at Haran. And so he'd become somewhat of a wealthy man. I mean, it probably wouldn't have been like it was back in Ur. But he would have had shepherds working with his livestock, probably other household servants, that he would have had people who maybe were too impoverished and they attached themselves to Abram because he was sort of like a, like a chieftain, like a wealthy chieftain. You know, there would have been tents and shepherds and livestock grazing their way down from Haran into this promised land that God told him to go to. He headed for the land of Canaan. So here he goes, down through Damascus, most certainly, down across the Jordan River and into the promised land. And when they arrived at Canaan, Abram traveled through the land as far as Shechem. And there he set up camp beside the Oak of Moray, well, at that time, the area was inhabited by Canaanites. So that's sort of an unfortunate detail that God forgot to mention. Somebody's already living there. It's like God saying, 
you got to go to this land I'm going to give you. I call it New York City. And, and you're like, God, a bunch of people already live there. And he's like, I know, just, just find a place to set up your tents. I'll work all the rest of the details out in due time. Well, that, that might have been a little embarrassing for all these people he talked into moving down into this promised land. That there's all these other people that already think they own the place. But then, this is cool, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. And so Yahweh appeared to Abram way back in Ur, and then we don't have any record of any appearances, any conversations, the whole trip up to Haran, the whole time in Haran, the whole journey down into the promised land. And then they get there, and again, God shows up. And God affirms that step that Abraham took. It's almost like God was waiting there the whole time, and he's like, what took you so long? And God will do this sometimes. He will call on us to take a step of faith, and then we've got to wrestle through. Am I really going to do it? Maybe you're wrestling right now. And you're like, God, just give me one more sign of affirmation, one more appearance, one more something. And you get silence from God. And a lot of times, it's not until we take that step, so we take that risk until we maybe part ways with the old life and head down, take another step toward the new, that's when we get that rush of affirmation from God. And he said, I'll give this land to your descendants. And Abram built an altar there and dedicated it to Yahweh, who had appeared to him. And so Abram has pitched his tent and he's built an altar. And these two things really define Abraham's relationship to this life and the next. The tent, that's going to come to signify Abraham's relationship to this world. He's not going to have the permanence of a house. He's going to live in tents. And you know, sometimes that gets a little old. Like, have you ever been to the end of a long week of camping? And you're like, I just want to sleep in a real bed. You know, your ice is all melted in your cooler. There's, it's hot dog infused water in there. You're, trying to, you're bobbing for that last thing of lunch meat, and you're just like, I just want something permanent here. Well, Abraham is going to be camping for the rest of his life. He says, I'm a stranger and a foreigner here in this land. That's the kind of life that he signed up for when he signed up for following God. And so he builds his tent, and he builds his altar, and that defines his relationship to the next life. That shows that Abraham was looking for a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. And so he kept his eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. That is the essence of true biblical faith. So things are looking pretty good here. Let's move the map over a little bit. After that, he traveled south, and he set up camp in the hill country, with Bethel to the west and Ai to the east. So he's moving down here in the area of what would become Jerusalem. He camps there again. He built another altar, and he dedicated it to Yahweh, and he, he called upon the name of the Lord, or he worshiped Yahweh. And so we see him offering sacrifices. God must have told him, my way is that the death of an animal substitutes for you, that you deserve death. But a sacrifice can be substituted in your place. 
a picture that would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who would die on the cross for our sins as our sacrifice, as our innocent in our place. These were the sorts of things that would have been happening at these altars. These were the sorts of things that the rest of the people could look on. They could learn what Yahweh was like. And Abraham continued traveling south by stages, down toward the Negev. That's the desert, down in the southern portion of the Promised Land. So he's just making his way all the way down through here. And then, at that time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan. So not only are there people living there, but what's so good about this land? There's a famine here. How do the people in Abraham's household feel? Nice job, Abram. So, so, so this God told us to come here. Can't he even provide food for us? I don't know if you've ever had a time where you thought something was God's will and you talked some people into following and then things weren't looking too good. A famine struck. Yeah. Sometimes God will lead you straight into the middle of the famine. It's not because he couldn't provide food. No. It's because what he's trying to give Abraham is a little bit of faith. He's trying to build up his trust in God. If everything in your life, spiritual life is always easy, you're never going to grow in your faith. What you need is you need to have some sort of a gap between the promises of God and what you're experiencing today, right now. And it's in that gap, that's where faith grows. That's where I think back through, what did God really say? Do I trust him? What's his, been his track record so far? Well, there was the thing in Ur, there was, there was the appearance up there. Uh, when I got into the land of promise, um, I got to believe this is what God wants. I got to stay right here. I got to keep trusting him. I wonder how God is going to come through. That's the attitude of faith. That's the attitude of trust. God is going to ask Abraham to do a lot bigger things later in his life. He's got to build up his faith muscles right now. He's got to teach him to trust. Maybe you feel like you're going through a famine. Maybe it's a famine of good feelings. Maybe there's a famine of money. Maybe there's a job famine. Maybe there's a famine of eligible people who I could marry. A famine of boyfriends or girlfriends. I've been there, for sure. You've got to decide, am I going to take things into my own hands or not? Well, unfortunately, Abraham, after stopping short in Haran, and then finally moving into the land of promise, he bails. He went down to Egypt, where he lived as a foreigner. It's usually where you went during a famine because you weren't dependent on the rainfall. You had the, the Nile flood and e Egypt. You, you knew there was going to be food in Egypt, okay? Even if there was not food anywhere else. And so he goes to Egypt, and that's a big mistake. It's always a mistake to go down to Egypt in Scripture, let me tell you. <laughs> to go back to Egypt, to go down to Egypt, it's never good in the Bible. Not that God is against Egypt, okay? Okay. <laughs> What, what he wants is people to trust him. He wants to trust him right where he wants him to be. Well, as he's approaching the border of Egypt, he starts to get a little worried. And so he said to his wife, Sarai, so here's Abraham speaking for the first time, the great father of faith. 
Look, honey, you're a very beautiful woman. Oh, thanks, Abram. You say the sweetest things. <laughs> um, you should let me finish before you say that. <laughs> when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Let's kill him, then we can have her. Yeah, in the ancient world, adultery was worse than murder. So you didn't just take a guy's wife. You did the honorable thing and you killed him first. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, she's back on the market. <laughs> so could you just tell him you're my sister? <laughs> and, and look at his rationale. And then they'll treat me well, and my life will be spared because of you. Oh, oh. really, is that what's going to spare Abraham's life? Is that what's going to protect Abraham, that he tells a lie? I mean, I guess technically she's his half-sister, okay? But that half-truth totally covers up the actual truth that she is, in fact, his wife. And what is going to keep Abraham safe? Is it the half-truths, the lies that he can tell? Is it how he can outsmart the Egyptians? Or is it that promise that God made? That I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you, even though your wife can't have kids, and you can't either. And here, he's putting the great nation in jeopardy by trying to give away his wife. No, that's not why your life will be spared, Abraham. You need to trust God and his power. And sure enough, when Abraham arrived in Egypt, everyone noticed Sarai's beauty. Remember, she's 65, but she's going to live to like 130, so she's like middle-aged. She's like a good-looking middle-aged woman, married to this sort of wealthy, powerful chieftain. She'd be an eligible bachelorette. But I don't think he expected it to go this far. When the palace officials saw her, they sang her praises to Pharaoh, their king, and Sarai was taken into his palace, his harem. She's been drafted. <laughs> Political alliances were formed this way. He's probably thinking, maybe she can't have kids, but she, you know, she's good looking and I can get uh, an alliance with this Abram dude out of it. And so he just takes her. And then he goes to Abram and he starts giving him all this dowry, all these, these wedding gifts. Sheep, goats, cattle, male donkeys, female donkeys, male servants, female servants, camels. And Abram's just like, uh, thanks. Gee, you didn't really have to. This dude is getting rich. Which just goes to show, just because you're experiencing material blessing doesn't mean you're in the place God wants you. The famine is where God wanted him. The, wealth, the, the place of wealth, the lottery winner, is not where God wanted him. A lot of believers get it backward. They think God wants me to be wealthy and have a lot of stuff. No, this, this actually is the worst thing that could have happened to Abraham. We'll see later why. Yahweh sent terrible plagues upon Pharaoh and his household because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Finally, I think she just told Pharaoh what was going on. Abram didn't tell her. And so, Pharaoh summoned Abram and accused him sharply. What have you done to me? He demanded. 
No answer. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? No answer. Why did you say she's my sister and allow me to take her as my wife? Apparently he didn't sleep with her. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and get her out of here. And Pharaoh ordered some of his men to escort them. And he sent Abraham out of the country along with his wife and all of his new possessions. This is like when they fire you and security escorts you to the border of the country. And Abram left Egypt and traveled north into the Negev along with his wife and all that they owned. It's really emphasizing his wealth now. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver and gold too. They must have been selling off stuff as they left Egypt. From the Negev, they continued traveling by stages toward Bethel. And then they pitched their tents between Bethel and Ai, where he had camped before. And it says this was the same place where Abram had built the altar. And there he worshipped Yahweh again. And that's all we're going to have time for here this evening. At least he's back in the promised land. At least he's left his father's household. At least he's left the land of his upbringing. Now he's just got one more condition to fulfill, right? His father's relative lot clinging on to him. Well, let me just draw a few conclusions here that we've learned from this story tonight. First of all, sometimes God leads you into a famine. You're going to be really unhappy in your spiritual life if you just can't accept that. It's not that he doesn't love you. You're going to be fine. He's trying to teach you the great secret of how you can have joy no matter what your circumstances. You've got what you think your life should be, and you're wrong. God knows what you need. And that starts with a relationship with Him, a relationship where you trust Him, and where you learn to follow His loving leadership in your life. Abraham didn't know all the, the obstacles along the way. He didn't know Ur was going to be conquered in 1950 B.C. He didn't know the things that were going to happen in Haran, what was going to happen in the Promised Land. He just needed to know to trust God and not to get too attached to this world. The cool thing is God will be there right, right with you in the midst of that famine. Biblical faith means fully trusting God. Half trust really only gets you halfway to the promised land. Halfway to living that life of faith that God wants you to have, wants you to live. He wants you to learn to trust Him all the way. And, and sometimes we take a step of faith and we waver and we fall back. God is trying to teach Abraham to trust Him fully. And He's doing it with small and with big steps along the way. Third, material blessing doesn't necessarily mean you're where God wants you. If that's what you're seeking, you're going to be gravely disappointed. Scripture says, whoever wants to get rich falls into temptation and a trap. And so as Christians, we reject the world system. We reject consumerism. We reject seeking to acquire stuff. And we live looking for that city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. We live looking, you know, using the stuff of this world for a time, but really living for that next life. And finally, what have we learned about God tonight? 
God is a God who makes and keeps his promises. He sought Abram out when he was an idol-worshiping, moon-god-worshiping, wealthy man in the ancient city of Ur, and he made him a promise. And he kept his promise to Abraham, leading him all along the way. And that's the kind of God that we serve. God is offering you a promise as well. He promises, he's offering his son. He's offering Christ's death on the cross. He's offering a relationship with him that's only available through Christ. And he promises, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He promises the promise of Christ, who said, I'm going away, but in my Father's house there are many rooms, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Jesus has a spot ready for you in heaven. The question is, will you accept his offer? Will you uphold your part of the bargain, which is not leave everything and go to the promised land like it was for Abraham? For you, it's leave off with your self-righteousness. Drop your pride. Stop trying to tell God how much you deserve something from him. And instead, tell him, I don't deserve anything. I'm putting my trust in Christ for my eternal destiny. I want his righteousness to count in place of my guilt. And that's how you can enter into a covenant with God that's never going to end. And that's Genesis 11, 12, and a little bit of 13. Next week, we're going to read the story of Lot, more about him. We're also going to meet this mysterious priest named Melchizedek who shows up on the scene in Genesis 14. Lord, um, what really sticks out to me in the page of this story is your faithfulness, your pursuit of people that aren't, aren't very faithful to you a lot of the time. Thank you that you're committed to growing our trust by showing us how trustworthy you are, by showing us how poorly things go when we take things into our own hands. I pray, Lord, that you help us to trust you You'd help us to hold still that, that maybe, it's, maybe it's the need to leave home like Abram did. Maybe it's the need to go out from that security base. Pray you'd give us the, the strength, the trust in you to do that. I pray too, Lord, for, for a lot of us, I think maybe more likely it's the need to live as a stranger in that land of promise and not to, not to bail out when things get hard, Lord. I pray that we would hang in there and we'd see the fruit of the faith that you develop in our lives, and we'd learn your peace, we'd learn your contentment, no matter what the circumstances we're in. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.